Phantom Sway. We make stuff you'll love. Seriously, check us out. PhantomSway.com Welcome to another edition of How Inappropriate, the podcast where we ask the question, could this movie get made today? I am your host, as always, Kira Allen, and I'm so happy to be with you. And joining me again, back by popular demand, is Mr. David Johnson, founder and president of SEI Entertainment. David, welcome to the show. Greetings, 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 and salutations. The checks keep clearing, so I keep returning. Yeah, well, I, <laughs> it's a lucrative position, I know. And oh, my God. <laughs> I was able to get cheese on my hamburger. The <laughs> pay is outstanding. Yes. Well, listen, we've got another great 70s kind of vigilante movie this week. Um, Last week, we talked about Dirty Harry with Clint Eastwood. And I said I wanted to move on and do um, Death Death Wish, excuse me, with Charles Bronson. So, of course, we always have to start out with the question, have you seen this movie before, David? Uh, not only have I seen this movie, but again, much like I said about Dirty Hair, it's one of the movies that helped shape the type of films that I make. It's uh, ironic that the last couple of movies that you've been picking is right in my wheelhouse. I know. It's funny. I had never seen this. And uh, before we, we went live, you asked me Take why. <laughs> you like, why? I can't believe you've never seen this. Now, much like with the Dirty Harry movies, I saw all the sequels, but I never saw the original one. <laughs> Uh, the original is the only good one. Yeah. <laughs> By the time you get to Death Wish 2 and, and beyond, I, th- I want to say it got up to 6. I want to say they ended up doing Death Wish 6 or something ignorant like that. But but from 2 on, was it was just a money generator. That's it. Yeah. I Well, now I know. But that's why I kind of thought this movie would be good for this podcast because it just <laughs> – I, I only knew the terrible movies. If, if it's from the 70s, start, start consulting me. <laughs> Contact me first, because if it's from the 70s, I've seen it, trust me. Well, that brings me to another interesting point about this movie, and I may have talked about it on our Dirty Harry episode with Lou Perez, um, and I'm not sure, but this movie was picked up. The reason why those sequels were terrible is that they were picked up by Canon Films, and there's a really great documentary on i think it's netflix you can find it anywhere i think it's even on youtube brett ratner directed it It it's about the two israeli guys that started canon films and their process for building um a film base and and one of their you know one of their strategies would they buy the rights to um movies like death wish and just kind of make whatever Mm-hmm. Um, that were just making money. And so, yeah, the, it, it's called Electric Boogaloo, the wild and crazy story of Canon Films. Okay, I got to look at this. You have to watch it. It is so good. It is so interesting. They have interviews with all kinds of stars, but these guys were maniacs. They basically made shitty movies, and then every once in a while, one movie would just kind of stand out and... So they'd make a hundred and then one of those hundred movies would be a hit. And then that's Mm. kind of the formula. They just like threw a bunch of stuff on the wall and they had no idea like 
they would just kind of let the directors go. They wouldn't even know who was cast in the films until the films wow. were finished. And it's a great documentary. I highly recommend it. And so Death Wish is a part of this um, history of this very interesting um, production house that became pretty big in the 80s and 90s. And, um, oh, yeah. Yeah. So I highly recommend it. Look that up. You know, I think you can find it on YouTube. But um, Death Wish is a 1974 film with Charles Bronson. I keep wanting to say Brosnan, like Pierce Brosnan, but it's it's Bronson. But it is the story of a mild-mannered New York City architect who, after the uh, death of his wife and the attack of his daughter by some New York City thugs, becomes a vigilante and uh, avenges their deaths by cleaning up the crime in New York City. And uh, a lot like Dirty Harry, this took place during a time when crime was running rampant in big cities and there weren't the, the response was not pleasing people. So this movie spoke to kind of that I, this idea of taking control. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, especially coming out of the, uh, the you know, the tumultuous area of the 60s. Where there was so much, you know, much like today, there's so much demonstration, so much, uh, you know, things going on uh, that, that, you know, most of the people did feel like everything was out of control. So they did need a movie like this where somebody kind of, you know, played the everyman. Uh, And actually, you know what, not having watched Death Wish in a long time, um, I forgot what a great performance Charles Bronson gave in this movie. Did you think so? I wrote I, I wrote the opposite. I was like, I, oh wow! Yeah, I was like, I don't find him to be a particularly skilled actor. What wow. was it about his performance that you appreciate? It was, I, it was the it was the subtlety and the nuances uh, uh, to the performance. It wasn't over the top, and it could have gone that way. Sure. Uh, even though with Charles Bronson, you know, it's, it's real hard to get beyond, you know, certain expressions because his face looks like it was chiseled out of fucking granite. <laughs> it's so you know? true. <laughs> you know, he, he, and if you see old pictures of him, he looks exactly the same fucking way. It's like at two, they was giving him two cartons of, uh, you know, Marlboros and a fifth of Jack Daniels. I mean, no, I know one of them hard faces. <laughs> it's so but, true. Well, I, one thing that was interesting that I did have in my notes, too, was that he was he was 52 when he made this movie. He he looked good. Yeah, he like, looked great. He was in great shape. He took his shirt off at one time, and I was like, dang, that brother <laughs> looks okay. He's got, like, abs, and yeah. it was He wasn't that typical, like, 70s. We talked about that on the Dirty Harry episode, how everyone in the 70s looked like they were made of Play-Doh. Like, yes. they said this doughy bodies and that was hot his uh, it, it's called real 47 year old bodies <laughs> trust me i have one I <laughs> and i don't want to pay to see that that's why like i want to pay to see people that aren't like me you know i want to see people pay to see people who are the idealized version of um, who sorry, i wish I to be that. I, I miss the realism the 60s and 70s films they they you know you, you needed to look good you know, but not this obsessive, you know, yeah. you got to have a 12 pack and the this, that, and the third, not a women are getting ass injections. I mean, it's just, it's ignorant. Just, I like watching real people. Yeah. Even yeah. though I hate reality TV. Sure. But I guess those aren't real <laughs> That's people. not real so, either. Yeah. Okay. That's definitely go. not real. Uh, no, I agree. I agree with that. I think I, I get that. Well, let's jump right into it. We start off with Paul. Uh, he pay, plays call, Paul Kersey. Kersey. Um, as I said, a mild manner, New York City uh, architect and him. We begin in Hawaii. He and his wife uh, who have been married 
obviously many years. They have an adult child, are on vacation in Hawaii, having a on lovely their anniversary, time. I do believe. I think it's their anniversary. Yeah, and uh, it's just some shots to establish this relationship. It's funny because when we opened up on Hawaii. Everything was cut together so strangely. Like the mm. edits were cut very strangely and I made a note. And then later on in my research, I found out that – and I wrote actually – it looks like they just tacked the scene on. And then later mm. on, I found out that they did. They, they tacked the scene on because they felt like they needed a little more depth to like how he felt about his wife. Okay. Uh-huh. Um, I can see that. Yeah. So, but then we, you know, they get back to New York City, and New York City, it's winter and it's gray and gritty, gritty, and... Uh, dirty crime everywhere, and everyone's like, "Oh, how was like perfect Hawaii? I bet you hate being back here." You know, it was just, uh, it was gross. Oh, and music by Herbie Hancock. Yes, you didn't know that. I did not know that. <laughs> Very cool. You know what surprises me is that. Um, I think of the idea of pop stars or professional musicians doing soundtracks as a modern idea. Mm, Um, Yeah, and I didn't realize that people were doing it even back then. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. No, it was interesting. It was was good. I didn't – Dirty Harry, like I really noticed the music in that. And I didn't notice it so much, but I did notice Herbie Hancock's name when it pops up. Came across the screen. Yeah. And then we see um, Paul Kersey and his wife, you know, settling back into the New York life. I notice they get into bed, like when they return, they get into bed. And I, I noticed that Charles Bronson, he had his pajamas on and his uh-huh. top was tucked into his bottom. So like, <laughs> who goes to sleep like that? Charles Bronson does, <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, how? You got a problem with it, Missy. I did. I really did. You know what? I actually do have um, like a neurosis about people being comfortable in bed. I I can't stand the thought of anyone having socks on while they're uh, in their bed because it's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable to me. And so to think of someone else wearing socks in bed makes me uncomfortable for them. Like when my daughter to have socks on your feet or it's uncomfortable for someone to have socks and then they touch you with the socks on it's uncomfortable for me to have socks on my feet and for me to think about someone else wearing socks while they're <laughs> sleeping <laughs> I, i'm not a i'm not a sane person i'm not i'm not a sane person wow but, that's, so, a, that's a fresh one no i, I have to, i have to i have to know that everyone in my house is comfortable in bed before i can feel comfortable in my own bed so like if my daughter's bed isn't made properly, I'll make her get up and make it so that she can I I always tell her like don't make mommy think about you uncomfortable in bed tonight. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why. I don't know why. Wowzers kid. Uh, I know. Okay. Anyway, so that was disturbing to me to see his shirt tucked into his pajama pants. I was just like it's uncomfortable. Not to mention, it's just, it's impractical. What is that for? <laughs> does he have, does he, does he then tuck in his shirt? If he gets up and goes to the bathroom, does he tuck his shirt back in to get no, well, in the bed? If, if he goes, if he does, you know, if he pisses when he goes to the bathroom, you know, you, they, there's the, the dick hole there. So you just kind of put it like <laughs> A little pee-pee so, hole. Yeah, okay. so you don't have to pull the shirt out, you know. They, they but make the, it convenient for it. Okay, but then you got to move probably the shirt out of the way. 
yeah, See, yeah. yeah. But remember, it buttons down. So if you don't button those that last <laughs> button there, you know, it just kind of hangs to the left and the right. Listen, ladies and gentlemen, we'll discuss this on our next podcast, our newest podcast called uh, Stars in Pajamas and what they do with their pee-pee holes. So that'll be Thursdays here on the Phantom Sway Network. <laughs> it's a fascinating conversation, I'm sure. Let's get... <laughs> <laughs> How the PP works in the pajamas. <laughs> Let's get back to uh, uh, Charles Bronson because he goes to work at his architectural firm. And the first person we meet at work is his dickwad conservative uh, co-worker. Who, right. And they're complaining about crime in the city. And, of course, uh, we find out that, Charles, that, that Paul Kersey is a bleeding heart liberal. That's how mm-hmm. his friend describes him. And his friend is then on the opposite of the scale. He's like a heartless conservative who's like, we ought to ship all these people off on an island, you know, or just kill everybody. But we do find out that he's a bleeding heart liberal and, um, you know, very uh, the sensitive type. And uh, immediately after that, we cut to his wife and daughter in a grocery store local grocery store they're getting groceries and this is where we meet the thugs that eventually will hurt them and one of the thugs is in his first movie role ever jeff goldblum jeff goldblum as as a nasty disgusting thug he was (laughs) we were like oh my gosh it's jeff goldblum get out of here (laughs) and he looks (sighs) the same (laughs) He looks about the same. Only with more energy because he's younger. Yeah. It's the same dude. Same performance, same walk. Yep. Oh, <laughs> yes. Oh, yeah. I mean, I was so tickled to see him. And, uh, and of course, they're being real jackasses in the supermarket, running around, tor- you know, just like hitting people, hitting things out of their hands, stealing out, stuff out of their cars. The out-of-control thugs of New York. That's right. These three guys, yes, represent it all. You know, they, and they've even got a, a can of spray paint. They're bad. They're going to tag people. You know, they're going to tag property. We know these guys are no good. They they find out where Mrs. Uh, Death Wish is going. By <laughs> Kersey. <laughs> Kersey. They find out where Mrs. Death Wish and, and Death Wish Jr. are going um, with their groceries. And then they uh, break into their apartment. They come into their apartment and... In a, what was a terrifying scene, I was not prepared for the raw terror of that scene. They the proceed to rape and beat the women, um, and they end up killing Paul's wife, and then seriously, you know, assaulting his daughter. But that scene was brutal. Mother's getting the shit kicked out of. She was. And I mean, they tore that girl's clothes off and they like spray painted her ass. I mean, it was just like very degrading. And then raped her. And uh, then they her mouth. raped her in the mouth. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I wasn't prepared to see all of that. That, that, that was Jeff Gold. That, that's Jurassic Park Gold Bloom. Yeah, it is. <laughs> they, they, they forced oral sex on this poor girl. It's Independence Day Gold Bloom. Yeah. It was brutal, but um, I mean, very appropriate. I I got it. Like I got what it, they were going. It elicited for. the the response that they needed to make you understand why this dude would go do what he did. Yeah, yeah. They needed it to be brutal. They needed it yeah. to be um, disturbing, and it and it truly was. And as I went on to do research about the movie, 
um, I found that a lot of people turned down being in this movie because of that scene. This mm. felt like it was too brutal. It was too, um, yeah, just too much. But anyway, it certainly did um, make the point. <clears throat> I do have in my notes, this guy loves his spray paint. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Everything gets spray painted, including the aforementioned backsides. Yeah. And I also have in my notes, Jeff Goldblum's ass. <laughs> we get to see if you can, people, if you're curious about what Jeff Goldblum's ass looks like or used to look like, um, you can watch this movie and you can see a very clear shot of his ass <laughs> as he's mouth raping an innocent young girl. Yeah. Uh, it's yes. a great scene. Violently. Did, did you hear the dialogue? Did you hear the dialogue? Um, I'm, I'm not going to say on this on the podcast. Go back and look at it and listen to what he says right there at the end of the oral sex rape. No, you have <laughs> to say it. Tell me. What is uh, well, well, you can say well, it. He, he, he said something colloquial for uh, having finished in her mouth. Uh, no, I didn't yeah. catch that. Yeah. But I thought it was so, brutal. Like- again, on top of everything else, they're beaten, abused. She's orally raped and he came in her mouth. Oh, my gosh i didn't notice that i have to go back and look at that i did yep. like when he was beating the mom and he was like you rich cunt you dirty cunt and i was like damn this is hardcore they they yeah. really didn't shy away from making that an ugly ugly scene and i think you're right they they had to you know this justifies because then we see kersey feeling um helpless and he goes into the police station after you know, hearing about his wife and finding out about his daughter. He goes into the police station and every everyone in this police station is like asking for help. And the police are helpless. You know, like the police can't help them. That's kind of set up from the start mm-hmm. that there's no action being taken on the part of the citizens of New York. And they all feel powerless. There's just this mm-hmm. feeling of helplessness running, running under everything. And uh, he goes home and there's that scene where he's looking out the window and he's seeing somebody get mugged and he kind of pulls down the blind, Mm -hmm. you know, and that's what we've been. I guess, you know, that's what we've been seeing is that. Oh, well, there's a a ton of symbolism all through the movie. That's definitely one of those scenes uh, where, you know. We, we take the victim mentality. We turn the blind eye. You know, we think uh, that because we're so out of control, I mean, not out of control, but, you know, without power, mm-hmm. that uh, all you can do is just isolate yourself and pray it doesn't come your way. And I have to say, David, that this movie, for me, I don't think it was a very good candidate for this show because for me, I thought everything was completely appropriate. <laughs> I yeah, actually, uh, yes. this is how I feel about crime and violence. And like, I used to be totally, I used to be that person that was like, I'll never have a gun in my house. And I would never, I think that people who have guns and people who like approve of that stuff are crazy. And then I ended up living in a place where like, criminals had guns and would gladly break into your home any day and then i ended up being there alone when my husband had to leave me and the kids for work um Mm. and then i changed my mind about it but to live in a place where you the police don't come when you call Mm. and if they do come there's no follow-up to what's happened to you um Mm -hmm. you're you can't really count on your neighbors because you don't even really know your neighbors if they're 
right. the ones like in on. Sometimes it would be the neighbors. Like, I can't stand a thief. You know, I can't stand a murderer, but murder has different implications to it. Like, there's rage, there's, you know, passion is involved in murder, there's all kinds of stuff. But a thief is disgusting to me. Like, mm. to me, a thief is a piece of shit. <laughs> it would steal, if, to steal what other people have earned. You know, like back in Gary, we lived in Gary, Indiana for years and years. That's where my husband was born and raised. Like someone stole our Christmas lights off the fence. You mm. know, someone stole the flowers out of our front yard. Like petty shit like that. It burns me up because I'm like, you're this is somebody else's that they've earned and worked for. And you don't know what we've sacrificed to have these things. And then you just come up and be like, I'm entitled to it because mm -hmm. you have it. No, I do want to shoot those people. So I feel like this movie, I was like, this is not inappropriate to me. I kind of am into this. Well, I, I tend to find that, uh, you know, that, that rule about 20% of the people doing 80% of the work, you know, I think that works its way in society also. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's a whole lot of people that, you know, want to sit back and let you do all the work to accumulate something. Then let me take a little piece of it. Yeah. Ooh, I can't stand those people. <laughs> it makes me so mad, like, to have a bike, you know, have my kid's bike taken. or I mean, and that those are the petty things. That's not even including, like, someone doing something dangerous, like actually breaking into your home and mm -hmm. while you're there, stuff like that, you know. So, and that was the first thought I had, not understanding the politics at all behind this movie, because I did mm -hmm. my research after. Um. When the thugs broke into their apartment and were doing all that horrible stuff to the ladies, I just remember thinking, gosh, it would be nice if one of them had a gun somewhere, wouldn't it? Mm, mm. You know? <laughs> mm. So, But but remember, there's, there's an explanation that comes a little late on in the movie as to why there, there would not be a gun in their house. Uh, yeah. And it will go ahead and tell us. Well, why, in, yeah. in Korea, uh, uh, you know, he was enlisted and had to go to, to fight. Uh, but he was a conscientious uh, objector. Mm -hmm. So they put him in the med corps because he absolutely refused, refused to kill anybody. Yeah. Yeah. So that's why. So yeah. he would not have a gun yeah. in his house. You know, he wouldn't he wouldn't believe in that. <clears throat> and that was, you know, necessary to the building of his character to understand the arc that he takes to get from one extreme to the other extreme, the things that have to happen to get him to change his mind and his, his uh, mindset about killing. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I guess I, I could say personally that that is kind of my journey in a, in, in less dramatic fashion. I mean, I didn't lose anyone, but yeah, I like, I was that person. Uh, were who, you thinking about killing people? Well, no, but like being a gun owner, you know, oh, and oh, learn and having a gun in the home. <laughs> I thought you were talking about killing. No, not yet. Okay. <laughs> I right. thought about it, but uh, <laughs> Um, yeah, but that was my kind of progression too, of like being, I just totally opposed to it, like nonviolence all the way. And then being faced with violence personally. And then it's like, oh, this changes you in a way. And it changes how you look at like what you like taking your own protection into your own hands, but we'll get more into the vigilante aspect as we move forward. Mm -hmm. But we see that he goes now he's got this development that's going on in Tucson. So everyone says, like, we're going to send you out to Tucson to work on this development out there. Tucson. They talked about Tucson like it was just the pinnacle of like luxury 
and rest of like Tucson. <laughs> Maybe like, it, yeah, it, it might have been some hot shit in the seventies. I don't know. It doesn't seem like a place I want to go now. <laughs> Tucson, Arizona. Yeah, but he goes and he meets this cowboy, a cowboy developer in Tucson, and uh, and that's where we get the story. He becomes that friends was an with this guy. Too, boy. He really was a fascinating character, wasn't that he? That dude was interesting. Yeah, he was. <laughs> And he takes him to this old, like this Western town, kind of like a, what would you call it? Like a amusement-y kind of. Yeah. Uh-huh. Like Universal almost, Studios. Almost like Universal Studios. Yeah, That's yeah. exactly what I would say. And then there's. It was a good, his personality. I'm sorry. Uh, Go going ahead. Going back just a little bit. The uh, developer that uh, Charles Bronson ends up meeting down there in, in, in Tulsa, uh, he was an interesting character, too. He was a, a very yeah. big, vibrant you know, big personality guy. Yeah. And and I thought it was necessary. I thought it was really interesting because it was a great contrast to Charles Bronson's character. Charles Bronson's character gets off the plane and he's very stern and strict and, you know, kind of, uh, uh, you know, stern in the face. And that's indicative of having to live out New York where you're up on top of people and there's all this crime and blah, 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 blah. But then he meets this guy and this guy's all, Fancy free and hey, how you doing? This, that, and third, as if to say, living in Tulsa, living in some place where Tucson. the crime is not that in Tucson, yeah. wherever, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> where the crime isn't as bad. It just it makes you a much freer person. I thought that was interesting, and I did write in my notes. I asked the question because they talked about it a lot, like quite a few times. It was mentioned that they're wasting space there, yep. and I I felt like that meant something, but I just wasn't quite sure that I was grasping what it was, but it was like the developer, you know, he's developing a community, um, which nowadays to our eyes looks normal, like a suburban community. But um, Bronson coming from New York is like all we could put in like a thousand more units in here. You're wasting space. And and there's a, a quite a, a couple of different times where there's a back and forth about all, oh, you know, the, we're talking about a lifestyle here. People want space. That's what they're paying yep. for. And then when he went back to New York, his bosses said something to the effect of, oh, what a waste of so much space. Mm-hmm. So I didn't know if I was missing something significant or is that the difference between kind of city life and small Well, I definitely think that uh, that big city life is, you know, every square inch is a dollar. Yeah. Um, Whereas down there, uh, as a matter of fact, dude has a conversation where he's talking to Charles Bronson. He tells him, you know, the, the hills, the cows, the, the people, the land, all of that. He's like, all of that is, you know, is, is of the same value. Mm. So you, you kind of need all of this. And Charles Bronson just couldn't get it. He's like, dude, it's just, we, we can make money off of this. Well, like we talked with Dirty Harry about how there were so many parallels um, with mo- what's happening in modern American politics. Um, I felt, I thought the same thing when I was watching that scene and this idea of how people would live in Tucson, as opposed to how they would live in New York and the New York guys, his bosses could, they did not get it. Like they could not understand why this guy wouldn't want every inch used. And I was thinking after the election, there was a lot of self analysis going on about how could Donald Trump win and no one expected it. And, and, there was a there's been and still is, I think, a huge conversation about like how life is different for people in the big metropolitan centers mm-hmm. than in other places in America and how you can live in a bubble and not understand that life is really different in another mm-hmm. place. And that means the people are different and they think differently. 
So there's that kind of tension between, you know, people who live in the same country but live very, very different lives. Totally different lives. Absolutely. Uh, people can live in the same city and live a totally different life. Oh, yeah. Of course. You know, there are, you know, certain people in certain areas of Chicago where Chicago is a totally different city than, say, somebody down on 103rd Cottage. Yeah. I mean, I know people from L.A., from like Compton and Watts who have never been to Beverly Hills, have yep. never been to the beach, you know. But Worlds it, are completely different. It's all L.A., but yeah, completely different worlds. So absolutely. And I think that's something that we miss a lot in modern politics is that, like how different people are and how it affects like how they their worldview. Uh, we make a lot of assumptions about people. Anyway, that's very interesting. So Cowboy, um, I have in my notes as cowboy sunglasses because he had, <laughs> had those yellow shades was kind of cool oh uh, yeah they were okay <laughs> but i did like him he takes him to the gun club takes him to go shooting and this is where we see charles bronson now we didn't talk about how he, the role of quarters before he came out to tucson i was gonna ask you about that yeah we missed that part yeah we missed the part that was important i'm sorry i skipped that but earlier before he came to tucson he and he realized you know I'm kind of helpless against these criminals and I'm kind of angry when I see them taking advantage of people. And so he goes and gets $20 in quarters and rolls them up in a sock. And then somebody tries to uh, jack him on the way home from work or try to mug him. And he knocks him out with his roll of quarters in the sock. And he felt he, you can see that he feels so good. A little more empowered. Oh, yeah. I, I had in my notes, like, oh, he got a little, like, the, the bleeding heart liberal got a little taste of violence, and it feels good, you know? And see, so, you know what? That's one of those scenes where I talk about those subtle moments that I thought uh, Charles Bronson did a good job in this movie. That that scene is one of them because, like you said, he he, he comes home, and he's, he's starting to feel a little strong about himself, and he's whipping the, uh, the, the, the roll of quarters and the sock over his head, and then, boom, he hits the chair, and the quarters break and go flying all over the place. Mm-hmm. And you can see on his face that he realizes this is not enough. Yeah, yeah, very true, very true. And so he moves on to Tucson, and he meets Cowboy Sunglasses, and they're at the gun club, and and I loved this scene. I loved it. I thought I wrote down there are so many great sound bites in this scene, like the um, the cowboy talking about like he shows him this gun and he's like it's just a tool. He's like it's like an axe or a pick, and it's like that's exactly. All of this reflects how my journey, like I went to a gun range, I took, a, I paid to take a class for someone to teach me. And, and the woman that led the class was this like super redneck hick named Deb. And that's how she talked. She was from Southern Indiana and she talked like that. And she was mm-hmm. like, it's just a tool. She's like, it can't do nothing to you unless you do it to the gun. You know, <laughs> she would be like, you can't be scared of this thing. You're the one in control. They don't got legs. You know, <laughs> she, she was a care. She had a perm. She had like an eighties perm and she mm. wore cowboy boots with her jeans tucked in oh, I- and a hip, uh, what do you call those things on you wear on your hip? Uh, a little sack that you wear on your hip. Why can't I think of it? Anyways. Uh, anyway. Um, she was a character. And she knew I was scared. I mean, I looked very scared in her course. So she spent a lot of time 
with me lecturing me, but I was very grateful for her help. But that's how she was. Mm-hmm. And he's got a lot of those quotes in there, you know, just talking about um, how people want to blame this weapon, but it's it's what's basically is like what's in the heart of a person that matters mm-hmm. and all that. I thought there was a lot of interesting conversation there. <clears throat> Excuse me. And then, of course, that's when we find out about um, Paul's service in Korea and mm-hmm. being a conscientious conscientious objector and then as he's leaving cowboy sunglasses gives him a little gift and sticks it in his suitcase i was getting ready to say hold up but before you before you leave about the gun club scene Mm -hmm. in addition to talking about being a conscientious objector uh the other thing that he talked about was that it was his mother that was the pacifist his father was a hunter that's right and what sparked that conversation is uh, once the guy gave the gun to Charles Bronson to go ahead and shoot at the gun range, he, boom, hit a bullseye immediately. And the guy was like, oh, you've shot before. Yeah. So he was skilled with that gun. He was choosing not to use it. That's true. And that surprised me because when I saw him hold the gun, I was like, well, he's already holding it. Like he already knows what to do with it, mm-hmm. you know, <clears throat> and because, you know, if you've ever been shooting, you know, you can tell a person who's never held a gun before. It's like watching Somebody in a movie smoke who's never smoked before. You know, oh, absolutely. Really, yeah, you can so really, I know you can really tell. So I was like, oh, well, for a bleeding heart liberal, he's a pretty good shot. But then he gives that explanation. Also, a great endorsement for why you wear the orange vest when you go hunting. Mm, so yep. you don't look like a deer. Yep. Yes. Because his father was killed. His father was killed. And so he's raised by his pacifist pacifist bleeding heart liberal mother yes um yeah and so he he travels home and he's obviously obviously the cowboy's given him a gun i mean that there was no question that that was his little gift to him um with, with some heavy now, now there that that moment uh the the music that herbie hancock kind of did in that scene when he was unpacking and discovering he has the gun i wasn't crazy about the music in that scene no no, no, yeah. it just no, it's uh. Uh-uh. <laughs> I actually wasn't crazy about the soundtrack. Really? Yeah. No, I wasn't. And I think part of I I actually wasn't crazy about this whole movie, although I liked it. But I think part of my problem was that we watched Dirty Harry last week, and okay. that was really really good, and it was done di- a lot differently. And so I was compare. I I felt like I was comparing the two. Cause okay. they're, yeah, because uh-huh. they're kind of in the same canon, you know. So um, I think that was my problem. I just was judging it against a movie that was more artistically thought out, I think. But, and see, uh, I, I really I like the music. I really like the music in this movie, um, except for that one thing. But I really like the music uh, mainly because I think jazz, which is kind of the way that Herbie Hancock approached the music in this uh, in, in this movie, um, kind of represents chaos. Mm. You know, jazz mm-hmm. is all about this, you know, very chaotic, you know, you play and then I play and then, you know, we try to find some kind of rhythm in this chaos. Mm. And and that's what I kind of got out of it. I was like, oh, it, in, instead of just kind of being an undercurrent of melody beneath the movie, it actually became one of the characters. It, the, the music was also part of this chaos. Well, that's a very interesting way to interpret it. I hadn't thought about that. And and it could also be that I don't like jazz. So <laughs> <laughs> it just 
could just be that simple. <laughs> I'm a very, I'm a very simple minded person. I mean, I have complex thoughts and complex ideas, but like, I am very practical when it comes to, I don't have sophisticated music tastes. You know, I know what I like and that's it. Like I'll put a pop song on my iPod just as quick as I'll put some classic on there. I, I don't have a lot of deep thoughts about things like music and, or like even when it comes to movies, I love symbolism and stuff. But one of the things that I really like about this story, as I was saying earlier and Dirty Harry is it's simple. It is bad guys, good guys, good guys kill bad guys. I like that, you know, not having any ambiguity. I feel like life is ambiguous enough, and I like straightforward stories sometimes. And this is a straightforward story. Now, what tickled me about the scene that the cowboy giving him the gun and sticking it in a suitcase was like, oh, this is pre, definitely pre-9-11. Like, <laughs> <laughs> oh, are you checking this bag? Here you go. <laughs> Well, shit, back in 1974, as long as it wasn't on the fucking plane, like yeah. where the passengers can get their hands on it, you're fine, man. Stick it down the car, go. Stick it in the car. As long as there wasn't, like, an audible ticking sound coming from it. it. Yeah. It. And so he uh, flies home, and he meets his son-in-law at the airport um, to find out that his daughter has been committed to an insane asylum basically yeah, uh, she's yeah, she's yeah. been that, um, that, that poor baby has gone through it she was gone you know what i wrote here in my notes at this juncture when we see the son pick him up at the airport i wrote i hate his son-in-law it, that <laughs> spineless motherfucker I hate him. Oh, oh my god he, i wrote he's meathead with a tie yeah, he's uh, he's yeah, from but, but not as Bunker, Jewish, but not, not as Jewish, Jewish. <laughs> <laughs> but as whiny like that, like it as whiny was, and was so annoying. Dude. Like, yeah, just oh spaghetti spine. Yeah, just he what? I was just like, dude, your fucking wife is in the insane asylum and you're all like, I don't know what the doctors say. I guess it's, no help her freaking do something. Go like. <laughs> make this happen but you're in charge here act like you're in charge the son-in-law was like a really spineless character and i i don't know if that was like a, a conscious choice of, of the writer or the actor but certainly set against um his father-in-law it was a contrast dude it was ridiculous it was ridiculous that dude was driving me crazy he was <laughs> yeah damn yeah <laughs> Like, he came into that apartment later on, he visits Paul, and Paul's feeling all randy because he started killing people, and it agrees with him. So exactly. he, he repaints the uh, he repaints the house, and Paul, and his son-in-law's like, Dan, it's, uh, it's a little loud. It's a little hard on the eyes. Shut up, dude. What are you doing? Exactly. What are you it's doing like I tell with my wife life? all the time, uh, that no woman wants a man where if somebody kicks in that door at 3 o'clock in the morning, she got to go defend the house while he hide up under the bed and call 911. Yeah. Don't want that guy. There's, there's <laughs> a scene where they're somewhere. I can't even remember where it is. But he, again, it's, it's Paul and his son-in-law. And his son-in-law is basically saying, like, we're helpless in the city. I guess they figure out that the police aren't going to help them. The police have no idea what's going on with this mm -hmm. crime, and they're never going to solve it. And he says something like, well, I guess we just, the people in the country, you know, they live a good life. They have it right, and we're just helpless here, and we just have no other choice but just to be victims. And just got to cut and run. Yeah, we just, we'll just, I guess we just have to cut and run. I'm like, dude, ugh. 
No wonder your wife went crazy. She probably is fine, perfectly sane. She just wanted a way to get away from me. I was just about to say, Charles, hey, I got your first murder right there. <laughs> just, just put it back in his fucking head. Oh, he was so annoying. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then uh, Paul got gets his uh, Hawaii pictures back. And uh, right. remember when you used to have to wait to get your pictures back? <laughs> Do, do you do you remember when uh, the, the the photo mart or the photo max or, or whatever the, the little stand it would, it would sit in the middle of an empty parking like a like like yes. a way station yes and you'd have to drive up there and yep. drop your film off and then get the slip and then come back and pick your shit up dude <laughs> when they introduced one hour processing game changer you know like when yep. you could do drop your prints off in the morning one hour wasn't really one hour but whatever you can drop them off in the morning and get them at night yeah total game changer mm-hmm. but yeah i was like look at them taking pictures with cameras that you can't even see the picture on before you post it <laughs> yep. or, or he'd take the picture and he'd have to wind the camera yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, we went to Hawaii last year and I bought one of those underwater camera. Uh, it's like a disposable one, and uh, the kids were just flabbergasted. They had no idea how to use it. My daughter kept trying to see the picture. She's like, "Where do you see the picture?" <clears throat> like, there is. It's not digital. This is where's the LED screen? Yeah, she did. She really she couldn't. She couldn't comprehend it. We live in such different times. I mean, when we go to a hotel, she the first thing she does is pick up the phone. She's yeah. so fascinated with landlines. I, dude, I tell you, uh, uh, you, you know what I, I do in the daytime. But mm-hmm. uh, I, in addition to being a director, I also assist uh, people with finding employment and training. And, uh, you know, occasionally some of my clientele that come through there have backgrounds. And some of those backgrounds go, you know, for years, in some cases for decades. And to have a client who has spent 17 to 20 years in prison come out and see the world the way it is now. Oh, yeah. You see what I'm saying? It's yeah. almost like uh, jumping into what we thought was the future, you know, in the 80s for real. Yeah. I can't imagine how confusing it all would be. Yes. No, I – yeah. I mean, I, think about that. Think, think about that. You, you When you went in – when, when you went away from the world, there were beepers. You come back now, and people are walking around with handheld computers. Yeah. That's what these sales phones are. They're handheld computers. Yeah. Streaming your entertainment online? Yep. Oh, all of it. <laughs> <laughs> seeing, yep. that, seeing those pictures, I was like, dang, we've just come so far. And yes. I, re- I remember those days of, like, waiting anxiously to get your pictures back because you went yes. to this party or it was your, you know, you and your friends went and did something cool. And, and yep. you didn't know what those things looked like. And then you had to sift through the ones that were, like, your eyes were closed or, and that was a waste of money. Cause that, that print's gone. You can't use that. And you, would you get, remember when they would give it back, they would give the negative back. Yeah. Yeah. I got, I got boxes full of negatives here. Oh, gee, yeah. oh wow. Wow. Well, my husband was a, a avid photographer through high school all the way. He still is, but he's moved to digital, but he keeps mm-hmm. all of his negatives. Yeah, it's crazy. I don't know. Anyways, that, that was just something I noticed. Um, and so this, I guess this might be another section, Dave, where you might look at that performance and say, oh, I see something here. Like, I see him deciding I'm angry. You know, I miss my wife. 
And these people took her from me, these thugs. And I'm not going to let that happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he goes out for a walk late at night, um, knowing that that's a bad idea, hoping that someone he would draw someone out. And sure enough, a guy comes and tries to mug him and he just shoots the guy. Well, see, and there we go. There's another one of those things that I thought Charles did a great job because I, I think that as much as, yes, he went out there, I, I don't think, you know, hoping that he would get mugged, but he was more, I think there was half of him that wanted to get mugged. I think there was the other half that, that didn't know what he wanted to do. He just, he needed some kind of, some kind of way of feeling better. Yeah. Because when that, when that moment happened, I mean, that like I said, that look on his face, he had that moment where he was like, you know, I can go ahead and give him my wallet or here we go. And he chose, here we go. <laughs> shot that dude and then shot the shit out of him. and then the police come to investigate later and and they say the dude's name was thomas leroy and this guy was the whitest like he had red hair i'm like that asshole's name is not fucking leroy fuck you <laughs> it was clearly one of those like you say, a placeholder. Someone put a placeholder name in there, and then just didn't remove it when they cast the actor or something. Yes, yes. Uh, I was like, bullshit. <laughs> that dude's name is not Leroy. If his name is Leroy, I'm Shiriqua. This is not. So every so that okay. This is what killed me about that part. That murder goes on the front page of. All of the papers in New York City. Now, up until this point, the police have not cared about anything. No one has, people been getting murdered every day in New York. That's the problem. Right. This one ex, this one con, or he was an ex-con, they find out. Um, his name is splashed across, like, the, the, head, the headlines. I'm like, wow, they really took this murder seriously. I don't know if you noticed, but that that happens a couple times yes. in this movie, like like five or six times. Yep. And uh, I I kind of get where the director was going with it, but it almost feels like you know one of the producers might have had to deal with like a newspaper making company or something. <laughs> <laughs> there was <laughs> a lot of exposition. Let's just put it on the fucking front page of the paper. Yeah, there the was. Get it? <laughs> yeah, there was a lot of like explaining done in newspaper headlines for sure. <laughs> and as a matter of fact. Um, a little bit down the road, the police captain, the guy who's investigating this crime, holds a meeting at the police headquarters. And he basically he's instructing everybody like this is our priority. We got to find this guy. We can't have a vigilante on the streets. It's going to send a, send a bad message. And I thought to myself, well, geez, if they had put this much effort into just arrest, finding and arresting regular criminals, it seems like... They wouldn't have this problem. <laughs> like, clearly, they have the resources. Story. Right? This is this story. <laughs> That's true. Uh, you like... want to talk about shitty acting in the movie. The, the, the guy, the inspector, whoever the dude was that was leading the investigation, that little short motherfucker couldn't act his way out of a wet paper bag. He was annoying shit out he of He was all odd. And, and, what and, was uh, that? Was that a choice? <laughs> yeah, like he had a handkerchief with him the whole movie, and he was always blowing his nose. And I'm like, is this an choice what is this an allergy issue or you know the herpes simplex six i didn't know what the hell it was he was (laughs) snotting every class what did it add 
to the Nothing. movie. You know, it was distraught. Actors do this, like um, actors who think they're more important than the material do this a lot. They'll mm. make a choice trying to bring some depth to their character and they'll make an external choice, a physical choice. And for them, that is the equivalent of going deep, you know, into a character or whatever. It, like, it's a signal that, look, I'm an actor. I'm mm. acting. I'm adding this. And it was just so distracting. It added nothing. It meant nothing to the character. It was just, it was gross. Mm-hmm. I didn't. Yeah. It, as, as an actor, it, it's it's one of those moments where you, you, you catch, you see a performer's insecurity. He doesn't feel comfortable enough with his performance to just stand there and perform. That's acting. You know, yeah, so exactly. he, he comes up with a twitch. Exactly. He comes up with a snow snot. He comes up with a thing that he can kind of go to. And it's like, no, you, you're just showing your insecurity. No, I think you're absolutely right. It's a weakness. I hate it. And I hate seeing that because um, as an actor, you know, we're bo- we're both trained actors. You know, as an actor, it's your job to be comfortable in this person's skin. You know, yep. you, you shouldn't need. That's why I think I've talked about this before. It's like I hate method actors for that mm. reason, like because as an actor, it's your job to be able to go in and out of character. That's what mm. you're trained to do. So if you can't do that, if the only way you can get a good performance is to give up every piece of yourself, uh, mm. I think that's cheating. I don't like mm. it. Yeah, I don't care for it. I don't care for uh, method actors at all. And they're oh, fucking oh. annoying. They're annoying. You don't like a, a like a, a Mickey Rourke? No. Really? I mean, I like, here's the thing. Like, I get it. Like, they, you can get good performances out of it. I understand it. Like, I'm not saying that I don't understand why people do it. But I think that it's the weaker of choices. And we always act like it's a big deal when they do it. Like, we act like, oh, look, they're so committed. No, they're being an asshole. Because now everybody else that they work with that is depending on them to be, like, a safe place to land so you can have good scenes and good chemistry, everyone has to deal with that shitty character all day every day yeah i mean i you kind of cut out so i miss what you said but, but uh <laughs> but yeah i was like great with you 100 percent, david or else i don't i don't know <laughs> anyway we can move forward we move forward God damn it. <laughs> uh, anyways so um and if you're listening to this podcast and it sounds like we have a lot of cuts, I've been having issues with my internet today. Um, we don't pay for our internet here. So sometimes um, it takes a while to get help because our little uh, cushy little suburb gets free internet from Time Warner or whoever we have. So sometimes it can, it's nice to not have to pay for it, but. Anywho, um, let's see. We like being a voter or being a constituent. The politicians always take care of the constituents. Fuck the voters. That's right. <laughs> I am a constituent. If you are not, no, not if you if you're not paying for it, you are a voter. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you got to pay to be a constituent. And I guess they are getting. I am paying them in a way, like they're getting all my information, all my habits, all my viewing habits, online habits. They get to monitor all that. So, but you know what? I'm okay with it because internet's expensive. So, <laughs> monitor me. It's fine. Um, if they need to know that you stay out on Pornhub, then so be it. Hey, <laughs> not ashamed. <laughs> not ashamed. <clears throat> 
Um, okay, I have oh, f- the black thugs in the alley. Now, now yes. you know, we get to this part. We we now we've seen that Kersey, Paul Kersey, has decided like he's made a decision after he kills that mugger. He's made a decision like full steam ahead. I'm I'm doing this. I'm going to kill these people because they deserve to be killed. And he, of course, later on runs across these three thugs in an alley um, and kills them. You know, they're beating up an innocent guy. And basically he, he has a, they see him and they confront him and he shoots them. Um, now, do you know what the interesting, really interesting thing about that scene is, David? Well, for me, the most interesting thing about that scene and something I really thoroughly appreciated is that they didn't write in unnecessarily black dialogue because <laughs> it was three black thugs. Uh, no one hey, said, I got to money. know. I oh, got to know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was so glad nobody opened their mouth and said, John, take it. It's give true. me your motherfucking money, white man. It's Nigga, true. I was happy. <laughs> <laughs> It's true. That is an interesting fact. But the other Ooh. other fact that's interesting is that one of those thugs is Denzel Washington. No, wait. No. Yes. yes. How yes. did I miss that? I don't know, but I was researching and I found somebody say at the 47 minute mark, some people say it is an uncredited Denzel Washington. He was the guy, he was the skinniest guy. He had on gray pants and like a maroon beanie or whatever and a black jacket. And no so way. I went back to look at it and it's very quick because those guys get killed pretty quickly. So you don't spend a lot of time with them. And me and my husband went back to look at it and we paused it at the 47 minute mark and it is frigging Denzel. I'm looking at it right now. I had to uh, pull it up on the computer when you said that. Oh my God. <laughs> Dude, yes. that had to be 74. Oh my God. Yeah. That was way before. What was that TV show he was on? St. Um, Elsewhere. St. Elsewhere. Uh, so, mm-hmm. Huh? St. Elsewhere. That was the show. Yes, he was, yes, yeah. yes, yes. And, uh, well before uh, Carbon Copy. I thought Carbon Copy was his first movie, but I Apparently guess not. not. And it's funny because when we went back to look at it, the first where we paused, we saw them from behind and he was walking and my husband was like, oh, that's Denzel. I could tell by the walk. He walked just like Denzel and then we that turned around. Is it is crazy. Denzel. I, was like, I started freaking out. I was jumping up and down. I was like, Denzel and Jeff Goldblumer in this movie. That is crazy. And wow. Then, um, Christopher Guest is in the movie. Yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. I mean, it's just kind of fun to see those guys who went on to such great things in their careers have such tiny parts. Oh, uh, and uh, what's his name shows up in here, too? Um, uh, what's his name that was on uh, Welcome Back, Cart- Mr. Cartel? Freddie. Uh, uh, Freddie Washington. Washington. <laughs> yeah. He was another <laughs> thug down there. Yeah. Mr. Cartel. Me Mr. and Cartier. at the mark at the same time, we were like, Freddie. yeah that guy man what a career that actor has had oh yeah he has been working nonstop since he was a teenager on that show and he didn't go on to like huge fame but he has always worked he will still show up in commercials like Mm. he is just a steady worker he probably he's probably a millionaire 
many times over just on his residuals from commercials alone. And uh, I think most actors will agree. I'd rather be a working actor than a famous actor. I just need to give me oh, work. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, 100%. And a lot of people don't know, you know, some of those things like the herpes medication commercial that you make fun of those people for. Those people are raking in some good dollars for that Sit. spot. Sit. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, that was funny to see Denzel there. Did a little cheer. That's Dude, that's crazy. Yeah, yeah, isn't it? So we, we see more of Kersey, um, you know, coming to the conclusion that this is what he wants to do. And that, and uh, we see him kind of now searching out these people, searching mm-hmm. out. And so he gets on the subway and uh, with a bag of groceries, makes himself looks like, look like a victim, you know? Got groceries. He's distracted. Um these thugs come walking through the subway, you know, they're looking for trouble. And what I did notice about this scene is that there were uh, two black people in the subway car with Paul. Uh-huh. And when they saw the thugs come, they just got off at the next stop. And I'm like, yep, yep see, so did. That's, why, so did. that's why these movies aren't about black people. That's why you can't have a black horror movie. <laughs> no. You can't have a black horror movie, dude. We don't sit around. You, you, if oh. there's a noise down in the basement, it's going to stay down that no. much. I ain't going down there. <laughs> no. They were like, oh, okay, bye. <laughs> they were like, you know, it's the other thing. Did, did you notice what an equal opportunist uh, 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 the Killer. thugs, uh, the race of the thugs were? Yeah, I did. And I do want to talk about this because at a party later on, um, with his crazy conservative friend, Paul and him and his friend are walking through this party. And now everybody's talking about the vigilante killer at this point. Uh-huh. It's like the the hot topic. There's like nonstop magazines being printed, like Time Magazine and Newsweek and The New Yorker. Like everybody's talking about the vigilante killer. And he goes to this party and he passes by a, a conversation that you hear a snippet of. And one guy says, well, do you notice that he's killing majority black um, like criminals and mm-hmm. the lady said and these are both white people talking and then the lady says well the majority of crimes in the city are committed by black people what do you want do you want him to kill more white people so that it's equal opportunity killing and um, I just thought that was interesting what did you think about that mm-hmm. uh, yeah I, I peeped that also uh, it was one of those things that uh, I'm thinking with the theme of the show could this movie be made today and i'll answer that later that scene could not be said today that's for damn shit. yeah for sure <laughs> not in this in this climate this political no. climate she could not make that statement no she couldn't I was like, and she would have been the next person killed <laughs> yes. yeah. it's like being a slut in a horror movie like yes. you're gonna get murdered so yeah when i did cringe when i heard that, i'm like ooh, like my 2017 sensibilities were you know flagged by that but i i didn't have the chance i meant to do this before we started and forgot but i i wanted to look up crime statistics in new york city because i didn't have a chance to know if that's true but i do know that sometimes it is true in other places like um we both have I mean, you're from St. Louis, and I've lived right. in St. Louis, and there was a point in the early 2000s where, like, the crime rates for the black community were unreal, like, 
so horrifically inexcusable. And mm. but they were like it was something like ninety percent of violent crimes in the city were committed by the black population. It was just insane. So then I was like, well, maybe this is a a situation like that. Now, I didn't have time to go back and look at the numbers, and I don't know how true it is. But I did think it was interesting that race, you're right. I, I was really, because in the other Death Wish movies, which I have seen, they're super racist. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. They're yeah. super racist. So I was surprised to see that, like you say, the, there was equal opportunity killing in this movie they didn't like because I mean, without a doubt um d- well depending on who made the, made the movie and again we'll get to that point i guess guess towards the end but mm-hmm. uh, uh i just I, I, how interesting in this climate that scene would be at the beginning where the mother and daughter were so brutally raped if they t- had chose to make those three people yeah black. yeah you, you know what i'm saying yep. I just, in this climate uh, that that's where some producer needs to get shot if if he okayed that scene in this climate. Yeah. I was relieved to see that they were not black. The the worst criminals in the movie, in the beginning. Mm. Yeah. I, I have to say, I was relieved to see that. I was like, oh, okay, good. They're not going to go here because this sets a different tone. You're right. It, it totally sets a different tone than yep. for the movie. Uh, so yep. I did appreciate that. Um, and then... Um, we see, I, I talked about it a little earlier because I hate the son-in-law and he comes over and Paul's, I think he's up to like four kills now or something. And he's feeling good. He's pouring drinks. He's got some music on. He's redecorating. And the son-in-law is like, what is going on? And he doesn't know that, but Paul is really excited because he just figured out that he can kill people with impunity. Doesn't that feel so good? Oh, when you said four kills, do you know I just went back in my mind and had to recount everybody. I'm like, no, it's six. Oh, excuse six me. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was the first mugger, and then it was the three guys in the alley, uh-huh. and then it was the two on the train. Okay, yeah, six. So he's feeling good. It, oh, he's repainted the apartment and yeah. everything. He made it bright, vivid colors. <laughs> uh-huh, and that's when... Um, son-in-law was like, oh, this hurts my eyes or whatever. Get the fuck out. (laughs) He made my, he made my lady parts dry up. Do you? (laughs) (laughs) Do you, do you remember, uh, the whiners? Uh, it was, um, Paul, uh, not Paul Franken. Um, well, Al Franken. No, uh-uh. Remember on Saturday Night Live uh, during the period of time when there was Eddie Murphy and who was the white guy that was the other the star on the show? Who was on with Eddie Murphy? Joe Piscopo. Oh, Joe Piscopo. No, and I Joe don't Piscopo know this one. And another woman had these characters that they played called the whiners. <laughs> You're the whiners. That was that fucker. Uh, yeah, that's <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> it it, it remind again just to make a parallel. It re, he reminded me of the um, the killer in Dirty Harry who was whiny. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, this is my right. <laughs> oh, like, ugh. Yeah, I would have killed the son-in-law too. He was useless. Yeah. You need to get a t-shirt. <laughs> you make my lady parts dry up. <laughs> Um, the other thing I noticed, um, by the way, I loved, there was a scene where he's sitting in a diner with a bunch of prostitutes and then the police go by and they're like, there's the pussy posse. I I thought that was funny. (laughs) I I laughed at that. (laughs) Um, but the other scene 
or the other thing that stood out to me was that how empowered like criminals felt in this city. Like yeah. not it didn't occur to any of them that any person they attacked would have a weapon. Yeah. You know, they felt it's like they attacked people freely because yeah. they knew people weren't armed and wouldn't fight back. And not many of them had guns, evidently. The, 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 the knives seemed to be the hot thing for everybody to pull out. They was, they was stabbing the fuck out of people back in 74. Yeah, and I wondered if that was just because, well, that's easier. Um, it's probably easier, cheaper, and no one's going to fight back. Like, no one has guns, so we just need to be scarier than the person we're attacking, and we'll be fine. I don't know. I don't know what the gun statistics were. But, yeah, I noticed that, like, what, wow, these people feel free to harass law-abiding citizens without you know any consequences it's a city out of control it is and charles bronson is gonna bring it to heel (laughs) (laughs) and he does because we find out later that the crime statistics have been dropping as the vigilantes numbers have been going up people are responding they love vigilante killers Yes, yes, kill them, kill them all. Back in, in like 82, 84, when we got our first VCR, one of the first things, that, the first movies that we got, or that my father got outside of pornography, was Death Wish. <laughs> Death Wish was one of those movies that we used to sit around as a family. So yeah, I fucked up my family was. You know, everybody else watching Disney and shit, we sitting around watching Death Wish. And uh, my mom, for whatever reason, when she would get real mad, she would roll up her tongue and stick it out the side of her mouth and bite down on it. Our kid was trying to hold her words back but she would sit there and during the scenes when charles bronson was going after the killer she would kill him kill him kill him dead your mom was miss alma miss <laughs> alma <laughs> later on when we see the city loves the vigilante killer and miss alma chased off two thugs with her hairpin with her hat pin hat y'all she's like i didn't have no gun like the vigilante killer but I got my hat pin and I chased them out. <laughs> and did you notice that that too made the front page? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I told you yeah. you had to deal with a newspaper company, too. Yeah, I know, I know. I actually paused it at one point and looked at all the other headlines on the newspaper. I just wanted to see what was going on <laughs> in fake New York City at that time. I mean, on the front page, along with this story about Vigilante Killer, was like, oh, Public Aquarium opens. <laughs> like That's also front page news in New York City. <laughs> and so the, they... Um, through a series of investigations, the police realized that Charles Bronson is, is probably this vigilante kill- killer. They set up a, a watch on him. The detective breaks into his apartment, which I'm like, I don't know what you could do with whatever you find in there, but okay, go ahead. Uh, again, another cheap actor's prop that I didn't like was that damn cigar in his mouth the cigar. whole time. Yeah, I was yeah. like, does he need this? What purpose does it serve? I'm like, if you're constantly coughing up phlegm into that yeah. handkerchief, you probably shouldn't be smoking. Dude. Plus, he had it while he was searching this guy's apartment. Like, you don't want anything right. that's smelly in there with you. Exactly. He's going to know you were in there. They don't find a whole lot in there, but they do decide to set up a tail on, on, on Bronson. And that's this is kind of the beginning of the end for him. And... um there's a one point where the mayor, but then we see that the mayor is like, I don't want you to catch this killer. Mm-hmm. You know, he's like, we, the the people love the vigilante killer. He's brought down crime. Um, just scare him away. 
Just tell them to stop and make them go somewhere. And so yeah, we're not going to arrest them. Just get be, be out of town by sundown. That's right. We don't want any martyrs on our hands. That's what the mayor says. And but we want the people to still believe in you. Right. Exactly. Um, so there was a scene that t- kind of tickled me because they harass him outside of his building and they, you know, rough him up a little bit and they search him and then they go and then they tell him like, oh, sorry, Mr. Kersey, like we apologize for roughing you up. It's just that we got a description of a guy with a gun that looked like you. And and I thought like, oh, this scene would be so different if Mr. Kersey was black. Like, I don't know mm-hmm. if I've ever seen a police officer apologize to my husband for pulling him over for absolutely no reason and treating him like a piece of shit. But you know what, in, in addition to it being different that way, unfortunately in 2017, it would be it would be different because it would be cliched. It would be so cliched. Yeah. The black man walking down the street that the police are harassing. It's True. so cliched. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's six and one half a dozen of the other, I guess. Yeah, but I did notice that. That tickled me. I was like, oh, this would be a different uh, scene if this guy was black. They were so apologetic. Like, oh, we're so sorry, sir. Would you like my badge number so you can report me? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Um, And then, of course, we find um, in that final confrontation with Mr. Kate, Freddie Washington, Freddie Boom Boom Washington, (laughs) that's where we see Charles finally get shot. He's finally taken down. The police catch up with them. Detective Hanky finds him in the uh, in the emergency room, and where he basically cuts that deal. Look, you got to be out of town. We're on to you. We know this is you. We don't want to arrest you. You just get gone. Go somewhere and never come back. And Bronson seems okay with that. I mean, what's he leaving? You know, a, a, a daughter. His wife is dead. A daughter who's in a vegetative state and a spaghetti spined. Son-in-law. Son-in-law, yes. So he agrees. He agrees to get up and go, and the city, I am assuming, has been empowered by his actions. And and so he goes to your hometown, Chicago. Chi-town. Chi-town, and that's where we see him get off, and we see right away, we see some thugs acting up on the train station, being jerks. And we see this little smirk and it is like, watch out, Chicago. Death Wish is in town and he is not going to put up with your shit. So get and, uh, it together. Uh, yeah, yeah. The, the, when the, with some of the, the thuggish people that were acting a fool in there, he made sure he gave him a wink and a gun. <laughs> Scene. That's it. <laughs> that is it. That is the movie. Now, I didn't find that ending as strong as the Dirty Harry ending. Mm. Um, which I loved. I really loved. But um, yeah, it was well, I think the effects are two totally different. Here, here at the end of Dirty Harry, you have somebody who's walking away from something and giving up, and uh, the end of Dirty, I mean, of uh, Death Wish is clear that he's just beginning. Yeah, yeah. No, I think you're right. That's that's a good observation. They are kind of opposite sentiments mm-hmm. um this movie was released in 1974 uh do you know how much it costs to make uh if i was making a guesstimation based on 74 prices uh 1.5 million three million mm-hmm. um do you know how much it made at the box office at the box office at domestic box office 60 million 30 million 
So that's, you know. Yeah, see, I'm doing inflation prices. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but I mean, it's still incredible. That's a, an incredible. Dirty Harry, we saw the same. So clearly people were hungry for this yeah. type of movie. Um, I'm going to read you a little bit of what Roger Ebert thought. He was not a fan. As a matter of fact, most critics hated this movie. Um, and this is another interesting thing, isn't it, David, about the disconnect as like we were talking about, like between city folk and country folk or mm-hmm. big city folk and small town folk. It's like there's a disconnect a lot of times between critics and audiences. Yes, no doubt. Yeah. And they critics are too heady about it and they don't understand all the time what people like about the movies. Well, I think a lot of times it, it, critics get too caught up in the art of filmmaking and forget the entertainment of filmmaking. Right. You know. Right. And for audience members, you know, I, I don't give a shit about the technicality of this, that, and the third. I just want to be entertained. Yeah, and that's literally what they're paying their money for. And so audiences definitely voted for this movie with their dollars in 1974. Roger Ebert says that... Um, <clears throat> Let's see here. He says that uh, director Michael Winner gives us a New York in the grip of a reign of terror. Uh, This doesn't look like 1974, but like one of those bloody future cities and science fiction novels about anarchy in the 21st century. Literally every shadow holds a mugger. Every subway train harbors a killer. The park is a breeding ground for crime. Urban paranoia is one thing, but death wish is another. If there were really that many muggers in New York, Bronson could have hardly survived long enough to father a daughter, let alone grieve her. The movie has an eerie kind of fascination, even though its message is scary. Um, uh, Rarely has a leading role contained fewer words or more violence. Winner directs Bronson with cool precision. um, Blah, blah, blah. There's never any question of injustice because the crime's are attempt are attempted right there before our eyes. And then Bronson becomes judge, jury and executioner. Um, let's see. He goes on to say at the end, he says, uh, this movie is chock full of peculiar cross references. The man who first gives Charlie a gun saying that a gun is just a tool is a gun club enthusiast of a highly virtuous sort. We know this because he insists that the housing project he is building be constructed with the kind of living area that modern architects call waste space. He's a man who hangs on to the old values. At the same time, the film equates kids who carry spray spray paint cans with muggers and murderers. Of course, to make its pro-gun message more persuasive, the movie portrays most of the muggers as guys who favor knives. The movie seems to assume that the city's young hoods would be too poor to buy arms if the gun laws were made more liberal. Surprisingly, since the movie is very mixed up, it doesn't consider the possibility that in such an event, some bleeding heart social worker would advocate the issuance of guns by the welfare department. Death Wish is so cannily fabricated that it sometimes succeeds in arousing the most primitive kind of anger. Yet it is a despicable movie, one that raises complex questions in order to offer bigoted, frivolous, oversimplified answers. So... Roger Ebert did not like this movie. Hmm, that, that was 74. I'm trying to think if that was the year Roger Ebert had that great uh, stick-up-the-ass accent. <laughs> um, 
It must have been around that time. Because that, that is a stick-up-your-ass review. He hate, he did, gave the same review for Dirty Harry. Oh, I didn't realize that Roger Ebert was this, like, liberal-minded about his movies. I didn't even know that this was even a thing back then. Mm. Um, that people were really talking about each other in these terms, like conservative versus liberal. Um, certainly mm. getting an education on it now, watching these movies. But yeah, he was, and he was not alone. Like, unanimously, that was the same sentiment. People the hated the pro-gun out message. Of, out of touch with the, what the audiences were wanting. Completely out of touch. Oh, yeah. Couldn't have been further from, like, they, they hated these movies, and these movies were so popular and made so much money. Both of these movies spawned five sequels. Well, I mean, like I said, Dirty two, 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 two through five, you can keep. You can keep. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. <laughs> Death Wish, uh, semicolon, Charles Bronson needs a paycheck, which that's yeah, every. No, no doubt. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, they, he hated this movie. People did not like the pro-gun message. Do you know who um, is also rumored to have been offered this film? Do you have any ideas? Uh, for that particular role? Uh, this, yes. Uh, the Paul Charles Kersey. Johnson's role. Uh, for Death Wish. I don't know. That, now, the, it was difficult to pin this down because there were a lot of people who said a lot of different things. But the... A few names that could, that kind of came up repeatedly that could be confirmed. It was written with Henry Fonda in mind for the role. 74 Henry Fonda. Uh, yeah. No, I, I don't know. He, don't so. he turned it down because he did not like the pro-gun message of the movie. Mm. And he thought it was too violent. Steve, Mc, Steve McQueen was offered it. I would have loved to have seen Stephen Queen do this. Again, yes. he was um, offered the Dirty Harry role as well. Turned that down. Um, Too short. Yeah, George C. Scott was offered the role. Uh, there's a movie George C. Scott ended up doing in the 80s called Hardcore. Mm-hmm. Uh, have you ever heard of it? No. Okay, well, well, I'll give you the real short synopsis. Hardcore is about this this man who goes looking for his daughter only to find out that she's gotten involved in the porn industry. But there's a moment where George C. Scott's sitting in uh, the theater where he's having to watch a movie that his daughter was in. And the performance he gave, I, I could see him doing Paul Kersey, and I could see him doing a hell of a job doing Paul Kersey. Well, he's a great actor, um, he turned it down be- for the same reason. It was too violent. He didn't mm. like it. Yeah. But he did hardcore. Oh, well, yeah, that's why. the porn industry. That's <laughs> interesting that you say that. Because, yeah, I'm like, wow, that's maybe, you know, time changes your mind or what. Well, I don't know. You grow a little bit. You mature a little bit. I have no idea. But, yeah, those were. And then it's rumored that this was also another role that had been offered to Frank Sinatra. Just as he had been offered Dirty Harry. Trying to toughen up Frank know. Sinatra. I don't know. But here's the interesting thing about this movie. Because in case you haven't listened to our Dirty Harry episode, uh, that part was also made for Frank Sinatra as well, which he turned down. He too short. Yeah. He didn't think he was going to be good in it. But he, did, he thought it was too violent. Um, and this this was – these were in the days when – like now it's kind of um, – you know, expected for an actor to kind of go against type. Like people love to see that to play against Mm. type, but back in Sinatra's day, it wouldn't have been appreciated. But, um, 
Bronson didn't want this role at first, not because he didn't want the role, but because he felt that he would not be right for the role because mm. he and and he wasn't the only person that felt that way. A lot of people that worked on the script felt that way because he was already a known quantity as mm. a uh, action star. Yeah. And the movie, the, the character is supposed to be mild mannered. And yeah. he's supposed to turn into a vigilante. So already just seeing Bronson on screen would signal that this is like a badass, no mm. matter what he was doing. So he wanted really, he actually advocated for Dustin Hoffman to get the role. You know, this is one of those moments where I have to say I, I agree with the direction that the producers went in. I, I think it, ultimately for the character, it, it was more important to buy the badass than it was to buy the meat guy. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think they would have had a problem if it was a Dustin Hoffman. And then you got to kind of buy that he starts to like this killing. Mm-hmm. The first killing I can get Dustin Hoffman, you're going home and you're throwing up and you're sick. And that would be great. Yeah. But once you get to the point where you're, you're sitting on the train and you know, you waiting to cap a motherfucker. No, you, you, you need a Charles Bronson for that. I mean, come on. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it was definitely a role for him. I, I, it's hard to imagine anyone else playing it, but um, not so crazy. Like, I I just – I'm with you. I don't know why they keep trying to fit Frank Sinatra into this mold, but uh-uh. it's a weird choice. But, yeah, so um, he was, like, towards the bottom of the list, um, but took it um, – again, a lot of people had a problem with the movie's theme of mm. vigilantism and pro-gun. A lot of people hated that it was pro-gun. And as a matter of fact, the author of the book that this is based on hated what the movie put forth as the moral center so wow. much. He hated it. He hated it so much, he actually wrote a sequel called Death Sentence about the consequences of vigilantism. Mm. Yeah, which sounds super boring. It does. Just kill bad guys. And that's it, you know, but yeah, he was pissed. He did not like the direction it went in. But again, as we talked about before, uh, the, the people loved it. People loved the movie and it's, it's still a classic to, uh, to this day. So of course we have to ask the question now, do you think this movie could get made today? Uh, I do. And strangely enough, if it were made, I think they would have to change a couple things, including, I believe the lead protagonist would be female. Okay, um, I'm going to tell you something that's going to blow your mind. They are remaking this movie. It is due out this year. It's being directed by Eli Roth, and Bruce Willis is starring. I, you, yeah, <laughs> let me tell you something else. Hold on, hold on. No, okay. I'm, I'm dead okay. serious. I'm dead serious. Because I, you know, every, every show that we do, I, I knew this question was coming. I knew you were going to ask me who do I thought would play that role. And I initially thought the first thing I thought about was Bruce Willis. Bruce yeah. Willis almost has the same kind of thing that Charles Bronson yep. had to do with, you know. Uh, but I thought at this age, at the age Bruce Willis is, he's too old for the character. I actually thought Ben Affleck would be a good choice. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. And he kind of did a movie like that recently called The Accountant, where mm, he plays okay. like a mild mannered accountant guy but then he's kind of a bad badass like double agent or whatever so he has that like range he showed that range in that film but yeah that, that's an interesting choice too uh yeah i when i was looking up research i was like what wait and sylvester stallone actually tried to get this remade in 2008 
as mm. as the star. But he was having some issues, creativity issues. Stallone is infamous for wanting to get his name in the writing credits. Mm. And so he, I think he wanted to rewrite too much of it. And it just didn't work out with the studio. So he let it go. Eli Roth picked it up. He's directing it. And Bruce Willis is starring. Yeah. And it's due out this year. Okay. So Bruce, so they're up it. in the ante and it's not just a, a, a husband that's out there. It's got to be a grandfather. That's yeah, I mean, I don't know. They try to. <laughs> oh, <old as> shit. <laughs> he is. He's in his, what? He's like 60. That's a granddaddy. I know. But in Hollywood, you know, like there's a movie out right now where Robert De Niro is like his love interest is 30 years old. Like ever watch a Pacino movie made after 1995? I mean, his his, his female leads are almost always young girls like mm-hmm. or I'll see I'll watch a movie with a guy like Bruce Willis and he'll have like an eight year old kid. And I'll be like, bullshit. This, this guy has like 18 year old kid, not eight year old kid, but. Maybe. You know my other my other problem with the casting choice for Bruce Willis is I, I even in his tender moments or trying to be meek moments in the beginning, it's just it's still going to feel like at any moment he's going to slap shit out of somebody and shoot him. And that's what the concern was about Charles Bronson. Mm, that's why okay. they didn't want to cast him too because he comes with a set of assumptions and a set of values to the audience already. You know, mm. seeing him on screen already means something to you. Now, outside of the Dirty Dozen, what had he done at that point? Oh, I, his I credit! Realize. Oh, his credit list was huge. I wow, it was. Very, I mean, prior to Death Wish. Yeah, prior to Death Wish. Because I want to say he did a, this movie called The Mechanic, but I think it was that was after Death Wish. I think no, Maybe The Mechanic was first. He was a bona fide action movie star at this point. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Then The Mechanic had to come first. Then. Because yeah. that was his other really, really big movie outside of the Dirty Dozen. Yeah, I'm just looking up some of his um, credits here. Yeah, the list is too long to even go through right now. But he had tons yeah. even before this. So he was known as an action star before he was cast in this film. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, so that's interesting. It is getting remade, so I guess. Uh, and they didn't do a female lead. It'll be interesting to see um, how they play the race angle. If at mm-hmm. all, mm-hmm. if they do that, um, if there's any kind of dichotomy between city living and country living or small town living, or if it's just going to be a straight up good guy kills bad guys thing. And I said this during the Dirty Harry episode when I said, I think they can remake this. I think they're already remaking these movies a la John Wick and Taken. Um, mm-hmm. And John Wick 2 is coming out this week, which I'm super excited for. I love Keanu Reeves. I love John Wick. But I love that idea of I don't like I don't need a lot of exposition. I like if I want to watch a drama that's about character development, I can find those movies. But when I see an action movie, I don't need it to be heady or intellectually curious. I want to see a, a good a good guy, and I'm using that in quotes, like not necessarily a good person, but our protagonist, um, killing bad people that deserve to be killed. But you know what? Do, would you consider Death Wish an action movie? I don't think it's an action movie. Um, yeah, I don't think it's. I, I don't know. I don't. 
think it's an action movie, but it's classified as an action movie. And maybe the reason that I think of it as an action movie is, as I said before, I've seen the sequels and they are definitely action movies. Those are definitely action. I'll blow your mind. I don't see The Exorcist as a horror movie. I think during... No, I think during that period of time, movies, when you start talking about the exorcism and, and uh, uh, death, which these are actually dramas. Speaking in, of George C. Scott. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. He's oh, in uh, the exactly. exorcist. He was yeah. in the exorcist. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's a fair assumption to make. Um, and a lot of people don't see the exorcist as a horror movie. They do. They see it more as a thriller or a suspense or a drama. Yeah, yeah, perhaps the lines were different. Really fucked up shit going on. Yeah, it is. it's still a great movie. Which is why it scared the hell out of everybody. Yes. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> you go yeah. see a horror movie, you're sitting there knowing, okay, well, this is going to scare me. Yeah. They went to go see a drama and got the shit scared out of them. Yeah. And, yeah, there's all kinds of weirdness in that movie. Yeah, and that's a good movie. I don't know. If you haven't seen it, you should watch that movie. It's really good. You should do the exorcist. Um, I don't know if I can watch it again, though. <laughs> I, I haven't seen it in a long time, and I don't know if I can sit and watch it. I mean, it still freaks me out. It was that good of a movie. But anyway, yeah, so, well, that's an interesting question. I don't know. that it. It's classified online as an action crime drama. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, I think perhaps the lines were a little blurred. Well, um, I'm glad I got to see this and especially in light of, and maybe down the road we can backtrack a little and do like death wish two or death wish five. Like death wish two is worth it just to see Lawrence Fishburne. Oh, is he those, in it? Uh, slatted That's glass. Right. Yeah. He was the one that had the pink, uh, oh, glass. gosh. Yeah. It's That's been it. so long <laughs> since I've seen it. Holy cow. Yeah, I mean, there's some terrible, terrible things in the sequels that could be fun to break down. But this movie wasn't terrible. It and really the worst wasn't. thing about the sequel is that they turned around and raped his daughter again. That is fucked yeah, oh. Damn. oh, my God. <laughs> Like, again, just like that, it was made by those two crazy Israeli guys who started canon films. Like, they did not give a shit. They did not uh, care. No fucks no. <laughs> Oh, man, that's just cold. That's cold-blooded. Um, but, yeah, I, I liked the movie. Um, I thought Dirty Harry was a better movie in this genre. Um but I was surprised, like I said at the top of the show, that I was like, this isn't a good movie for this show because I find everything in it to be completely appropriate. <laughs> yes, <laughs> kill bad people. <laughs> <clears throat> I have lived in a place where the police don't care about you and don't come to help you when you call and you're basically on your own with your neighbors. And I know what it feels like to feel helpless. I know what it feels like to feel um, not seen in the eyes of the law that you pay, you know, and that you pay to protect your community. I know how that feels. And so watching this movie, I was like, I could see a lot of my own kind of journey in this mindset. Uh, mm. So, yeah, again, for me, it was like, yeah, I, I dig it. I get it. Like some- So you would recommend it? I would recommend this movie. I would. I think it's a good um, – it's not – like you say, it's not an action film. Uh, you're going to see like a lot of ninja fighting and explosions. <laughs> but it 
if you watch it in context of where we're at now in politics and how we have this like very divisive thing going on in our country where half the population feels like they haven't been heard and that they're being judged and not being understood by people in like metropolitan areas and the other half of the population feels like um that they understand what's really going on and that the other people don't really get what life is really like and that the other people are closed minded or evil or bigots. And so every, like everybody's hurling all of these accusations at each other. Um, and it seems like that's what was going on in 1974 in New York. I just found that fascinating. There is nothing new under the sun. Oh no. Yeah. We're still doing, we haven't evolved that much. And like you, I, uh, I I tend to have what I call what I, what I have coined for myself a frontiersman's mentality, which is that I most certainly believe that you have the right and should have the right to defend your house and defend your family. <laughs> so sometimes the bad guy must go. Absolutely, I feel the same way. And like I said, I made a journey. And I did not start out that way and told my husband I would never be this person. And now I am totally this person. Do not. As a matter of fact, I live in these cushy, this really beautiful, picturesque Orange County suburb. And um, this lady in my Bible study was saying how um, she wanted to bring some cookies over to another couple, some friends of ours. And apparently when they came over, the friends were taking a nap. And so my friend thought it would be funny if... Her and her husband just like walked into the house and put the cookies in and then maybe like messed up the kitchen or something. And mm-hmm. and these people leave their door open. So that's what they did. And I remember telling her, like, don't ever do that. Like, you will get shot if mm-hmm. you just walk into my house. That is do not do that. Mm-hmm. I will shoot you. My kids know how to shoot. My kids know how to use a weapon. Okay. Yes, my children do. I don't have a problem with it. Once you use it, it's like a tool like it like that guy, like sunglasses cowboy said. Um, and I want them to know how to use it responsibly, too. Like if they come across one, I want them to know how to disarm it, how to use it, how to store it, you know, how to keep it safely from people who don't know how to use it. So I agree with you. This movie was not inappropriate to me. Uh, <laughs> and um, but the following five sequels or four sequels. are Yes. yes. <laughs> oh, please. Especially by by when all he's... means, get drunk and high and watch two through six. Oh, the first one's a good movie. The first one's like a real movie. But yes, then they get yes. into three is like terrorists, like Muslim terrorists, and then it gets all kinds of racist. Oh, th- once once the cover of uh, the DVD has Charles Bronson holding a rocket launcher, it has jumped the oh, fucking yeah. shark. It's over. Oh yeah, it is. But he I, is no longer a grieving husband. No, at that point. no, no. <laughs> He's contra. <laughs> all right, David. Well, thank you for sticking with me through all of our technical difficulties for this show. Um, tell people where they can find you online. I can be found. You can go to my website, which is www.showcaseentinc.com. And that's for SEI Studios. Or you can find me out on Facebook at uh, facebook.com forward slash SEI Studios. That is awesome. And I am Kira Allen, and you can find me on Twitter at Kira Creates. That's K-I-R-A. You can also find other great shows on the Phantom Sway podcast network. Uh, We've got the the Red Ivy podcast, which is a Cubs podcast. 
podcast, Chicago Cubs podcast. Um, I do another podcast called Ladies of the Ladder, which is a is a podcast about the show The Path on Hulu, which I am obsessed with. Um, that is new, and we're on iTunes. And how inappropriate should be available on iTunes. Hopefully, this time next week. So mm-hmm. that'll be yeah, whoop, whoop, moving up in the world and. Um, you can also go to phantomsway.com to find out all the latest on all of our different projects that we've got going on. Uh, thanks again, David. Appreciate you so much. And um, stay safe out there. No problem. All right. Take care. Bye. Music, books, ritual human sacrifice. Wait, 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 wait. Not that last one. Phantomsway.com. <laughs>